Hello, welcome to Social Justice Matters, a podcast from Social Justice Ireland. My name is Colette Bennett and I am Economic and Social Analyst for Social Justice Ireland. So as regular listeners will know, we have three types of podcasts. We have a 10 minute lesson series where we give kind of a brief overview on some of the more important policy topics. We have a seminar series where you get to listen back to some of the experts that have spoken at our seminars and conferences. And we have our interview series, and today is one of those. I am delighted to be joined by a former colleague, um, Dr. Anne Leahy. She has just published a book on the intersectionality between disability and aging. Um, So it's great to have the opportunity to talk to Anne today. I hope you enjoy it. So Anne, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you doing? Very well, and delighted to join you. Great, thank you so much. Um, So you've written a book, that's very exciting. Disability and Aging Towards a Critical Perspective. Uh, Why, why this topic, why this book? Okay, so um, I suppose there's an obvious answer in that populations are aging. And even though I think we all know that, I don't know to what extent we really realize. It means we we as older people, if you like, uh, assuming we're, say, of so-called working age now, we'll be part of a much older world. So there's about a billion people in the world aged uh, over 60 at the moment. That's going to increase by about a third in the next 10 years, uh, and it'll double uh, by 2050. Um, So a similar pattern kind of is happening here. And the greatest aging is happening amongst the oldest old. Um, And that's where Uh, disability, that's the link with disability really very often. So disability becomes more common the older we get. Um, And I suppose I also had a personal reason. I worked on ageing. I worked in the NGO age sector for many years uh, before uh, undertaking the study. Uh, So I knew that policies, NGOs, etc. on disability and ageing remained very separate. And that always seemed a little bit maybe of a lost opportunity to me um, because obviously disabled people will age and all of us who live long enough will experience impairment uh, at some stage. So it seemed a bit paradoxical that there were were so few sort of intersections between the worlds of disability and of aging. So an informing thing as well was that disability in older age in a way, it isn't thought of as disability. You know, uh, you have a chronic illness in older age. You're not really considered disabled in the same way that you might be at a younger age. So those kinds of um, issues were puzzles to me. You mentioned there, you know, people living with a disability will age. Um, and then as we age, obviously, we, we become impaired. Um, obviously, the, the older we get, is there is there a difference, I suppose, in older age for people who experienced disability from childhood uh, versus those who who become more impaired or, or you know, ha- have a disability into older age? 
Yeah, that's a very good question. And um, there actually is very little research with that first group, people with a long-standing disability who are aging, particularly in relation to physical and sensory disability, which is where my focus was. It's a bit more now, a lot more really, I suppose, in relation to intellectual disability. But basically that group have been a bit left out. And there are actually almost no studies that compare those two experiences. Um, because they tend to be assumed to be very, very different experiences. And I think in a way there are good reasons for that assumption. Um, some of it is, is medically based because the reasons one experiences disability tend to be different when you're younger to when you're older. But to my mind, those um, sort of medical differences have influence our thinking maybe a little bit too much on this. I think one key thing, though, is that people who age with long-standing disability come into older age with a real legacy of disadvantage on a whole range of fronts. So I would say that that group really needs much more of a focus, both in research and in relation to policy as well. Would there be any, I suppose, assumption, and just to play complete devil's advocate, um, but that that first group, perhaps because they have experienced disability through their entire life cycle, that perhaps they have adapted in some way that that it's it's almost easier. But then, of course, as you say, the corollary to that is that they have experienced so much disadvantage throughout that entire life cycle. Mm. Very good point. And that is true. There is a thread of argument that. Um, that you you bring resilience when you've experienced um, age when you've experienced disability over the long term and certainly my participants so I had two groups I had that a group who were had long-standing disability and who are now older and another group who were first experiencing disability when they were older and that first group certainly had all had were very used to dealing with challenges throughout their lives. But the truth of it was, they could also be very challenged in older age too. So for example, uh, somebody might say have experienced blindness in the course of their life, but now they were almost deaf. Uh, you know, there are new impairments. So there are always new challenges, I think. So while I'd say they're a very resilient group, I wouldn't underestimate the kind of challenges both at a personal level, like at the level of impairment, but also then they have new kind of barriers to negotiate as well. And they may be doing it with a legacy of disadvantage in terms of lower incomes and maybe less support around them. Yeah, and I mean, I, I think that's an interesting point. And you, like you mentioned the word resilience in that kind of context of, you know, that they're, their own innate resilience because of, of their experiences. But I think we have a, a kind of a policy discourse around resilience as a policy. And I have a real aversion to that, you know, in that it's it's a very individualized response to something that is much more systemic, something that is much more, you know, the, much more widespread, I suppose, and, and comes from policies. So it's not about well, if you make the individual more resilient, then they'll get over it. It's it's about what well, actually if you put in place the supports that people need, then you improve their, their well-being, their standard of living. Yeah, 
that's absolutely true. And just linked to that, I suppose, and focusing on the other group for a minute, people, you know, first experiencing disability with older age, I suppose there is a huge focus there on resilience too and on active aging and on, you know, promoting healthy lifestyles and all of that is, is good insofar as it goes. But the truth of it is as well, uh, like our whole life course will to some extent um, influence whether we experience disability or not. You know, poorer people really do experience more disability in older age. And in a way that gets a bit lost sometimes too. Um, and your your book, this, this new book that, that's um, out, this is building on your PhD, is that right? That's correct, yeah. And what are the, the key findings from your, your studies and from the, this book? Okay, so um, the study was, as I said, with older people experiencing physical or sensory disability and drawn from these two groups that generally are not brought together in studies, people aging with long-standing disability and people experiencing disability as they age. So I suppose, in simple terms, I have kind of two areas of key findings. So it was really about how they experienced disability in older age. And um, a key thing really was that a whole range of contextual factors disable them, uh, even though we tend, as I said, to think of disability in older age purely in medical or individual terms. But, you know, I don't think that's correct. So, for example, people could experience um, exclusion or sidelining in families um, and in groups, often when they started to use uh, an appliance like a wheelchair or a rollator. It was almost as if kind of disablest social relations, for want of a better term, kind of would come to the fore when people suddenly kind of um, appeared disabled. Um, they also experienced footpaths and transport as inaccessible, just the way, you know, all disabled people do. Uh, lack of finances was a disabling thing for some. So, for example, um, somebody who has the finances for taxis to leave home isn't disabled in that way. Another person I'm thinking of was living on a limited income in the country while living on the state pension. For her, a wheelchair accessible taxi was a huge portion of her income. Therefore, she really couldn't leave the house alone. So she was extremely disabled, if you like, for want of finances. And then something I think that's very um, characteristic, perhaps, of disability in older age is that it was often bound up with loss of people. So people often knew, say, that their ability to live in their own home would be reduced or would go if a spouse died or if a spouse got ill. So people very often knew that their lives were linked in ways that helped them function, and that could change radically, obviously. And it also requires us, I think, to have some attention to people who don't have those family supports. But even people who had had family supports all their lives didn't have them now because children had died or spouses had died. So that's the one area. And then briefly, the other area is really how people responded to the kind of challenges involved. And I honestly think that this is very much underestimated in how we think about aging. They were not passive in the face of these challenges. They were very much resisting a sense of being othered, 
just like disabled people do. Now, they didn't tend to use words like disablism or disablest or ableist, but they, they did not like and they knew when they were being sidelined. And in I, my thesis really is that they were actively seeking to remake their lives in, way that the, in ways that they could perceive value in them. So they concentrated on what they could still do. They made connections where they could. They tried to find new things to do. They contributed where they could. And public policies and community organizing could be really important to them and key facilitators for that. So a key message really is that we really underestimate what's going on in what we think of as deep old age or decline or the fourth age. Um, just, and I, again, I, like I know that, that the book and your PhD, that obviously that was pre-COVID. Um, has there been through the course of your, your subsequent work, um, could you speak about any impacts of COVID in relation to this or you know, have you seen it? Is it, is it out yeah. there in the literature? Yeah, no, that is is very interesting. Um, for me, I suppose I was writing this book trying to link disability and aging, and then suddenly in sort of public, in media, older people and disabled people were suddenly linked uh, and both considered vulnerable. So that was kind of interesting. I suppose for me, COVID really highlighted how uh, the lives of older people could be discounted. Um, so we saw in some countries, you know, um, treatments or access to ICU rationed on the basis of age. Um, you know, a, a journalist in, the, in England suggested that COVID could actually be helpful by um, culling elderly dependents. You know, you had this outrageous ageism um, expressed freely. Uh, so, as I say, it really showed to me how being older you can be discounted. And obviously there were awful things that came out of experiences of nursing homes in some countries, especially. So in a way, COVID for me has highlighted the ageism that stays under the surface. And in terms of what, where it might lead to, I think you know some of the awful scenes um, and criminal uh, behavior in some nursing homes, particularly abroad, um, hopefully will lead to more support for people to live at home. Uh, you know, we need lots of options, I would think. And also, I would hope that uh, it would mean that we would see that these are actually human rights violations of the rights of older people, um, bringing in things like the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities more for older people. Yeah, um, and actually just speaking, I suppose, in terms of, of the policies, you know, you mentioned that some older people may worry about their their prospects of remaining in the home if a spouse or a child dies or a, a child moves out. Um, and, you know, we've seen much discussion around home care and, you know, whether there's a, there should be a statutory right to home care. There was meant to be one brought in. Um, actually this year, kind of early in this year, we still haven't seen any any detail of it. Um, given the fact that we are going to have an increasing or we are having an increasing aging population, how important do you think these kind of policies are going to be in terms of the, the aging in place? Or is it a case of that kind of consistent 4%, 3.7% 
of older people in nursing homes is just going to have to get bigger. That proportion is just going to have to grow. Um, yeah, I mean, I think all of those things are definitely in the air now. I mean, there will be more uh, disability, if you like, due to aging. Uh, and I say that without being somebody who's negative about aging at all. Um, and obviously, um, healthy lifestyles are important and delaying disability is important too. But the bottom line is, uh, disability itself is aging now, and we definitely need a variety of choices for people. So nursing homes will continue, um, but there also needs to be, and we're very underdeveloped in this area in Ireland, all kinds of assisted living facilities as well, as well as more support to live at home. You know, a whole range of things need to be considered, like paying a family member or a friend to provide care uh, or enabling people to hire a professional carer. Uh, for me, the bottom line, I suppose, is the experience of disability is a diverse one, and that continues in older age. So a one-size-fits-all model is not going to work for you know, the extended population of older people that we're, we are going to have. I mean, if you had, and this is the kind of million dollar question uh, or billion dollar question, if you had the budget, if you had, you know, coming into budget 2022, um, kind of a, a, a top three or a top five list, what would be the policy recommendations? What would be on your, your hit list, your wish list? Mm. Um, well, I suppose it comes back to really what I've said, more diverse um, models of support, um, a shift to looking primarily at trying to support people at home uh, rather than nursing homes being the only option. Uh, nursing, homes, nursing homes of high quality, uh, certainly for, for some people who need them, but uh, a shift to try and look at uh, different ways of supporting people and also consultation with older people experiencing disability uh, so that we have their input. Uh, something that my um, research looked at quite a bit is the intersections between disability and um, aging in policies, because the two policy frameworks stay very separate now in all countries, that, that as far as I can see, uh, although that's not quite true because personalization approaches have amalgamated them a little bit in some countries. But, but those intersections really need to be examined as well, Colette, um, because what uh, it's not clear in a lot of countries what is meant to happen at age 65 for people aging with long-standing disability. And they can have quite difficult and quite anomalous experiences around those frameworks. But in a lot of countries, you have quite a different set of services available to people over 65. So the timing of disability onset around your 65th birthday, which after all is purely arbitrary figure based on you know, historical approaches to pensions, but um, so you can experience quite a different set of supports and be perceived in a very different way, depending on when um, onset of disability happens. So in effect, you have a kind of a, an institutionalized ageism. Uh, and I really think, I don't know that any country has really grappled with those issues, uh, but we need to start doing that. And there's researchers are beginning to do it, of course. 
did you come across any, I suppose, examples of kind of best practice or you know, something that we would like to emulate when you were putting together this book? Yeah, I suppose just a couple of things. Um, I think I mentioned that community organizing and um, public services could be huge for people. And that is absolutely true. So, um, you know, even though obviously you can critique uh, services, but uh, getting to either a disability centre or um, a centre run for older people uh, was really important for people who were finding it hard to get out of home on their own, uh, even though, again, they weren't sort of pass passive recipients of care in those places. They were very actively critiquing them. They knew the difference between, you know, a good service and a bad service. Uh, but they really appreciated kindness of staff that they met there or of volunteers, uh, connection with other people. And a lot of them really appreciated the opportunity to do something uh, purposeful or interesting. I want to give you one example. Uh, there was I'm thinking of a man in my study who was attending a disability centre because he'd experienced disability onset before age 65, but not much before age 65. But now I think he was in his late 70s. He had learned to use a computer there. He was using a computer at home. It was, um, it was a real uh, improvement to his life. Now, had he attended uh, a centre that was cared for older people, chances are he might have had that learning opportunity. The opportunities might have been more limited. So that's an example, um, an example of how good uh, a local care centre can be and the really positive role it can play in people's lives. So I think that's my key, key takeaway that that while support to live at home and independence, and there's a lot of um, um, emphasis on independence in public policy, and I think people really want that sense of independence and choice if they can make choices at all. Uh, but communal experiences are really important too, and communal learning experiences are really important. So in a way, we've got to think um, about ageing in broader terms than health and social care, because it's also about communities supporting people, cultural institutions and cultural bodies supporting people as well. Yeah. And you talked about, you know, that, that kind of separation between disability policy and ageing policy and never the train shall meet unless there is a kind of a more personalised uh, approach, as you say. Had there been any policies? I mean, I'm aware of, of one one um, policy statement um, that came from from both departments. So there was a, or so it was a, the Department of, of Housing and Department of Health, uh, which looked at that policy options for for housing uh, for older people. Um, and it did take kind of a, a universal design approach, and it did take a, a kind of a, a whole of life cycle approach. It wasn't specific around disability. Um, but are, are there any policies that are delivering in this space? Um, for me, I look to the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, to be honest, because, um, you know, the, at, at UN level, the Special Rapporteur on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities has pointed out that the convention applies irrespective of age. But in point of fact, I don't know that societies, policymakers, any of us really have taken on board what that means. 
because we still think of older disabled people as people just with long-term care needs, say, that's kind of how it's framed. Whereas in fact, there are people with rights under the convention. And I think maybe particularly with the impetus of COVID, I think um, policymakers are going to have to grapple with that nexus more. Um, one thing I would say though, is that you know um, the personalized agenda in, in sort of disability um, services, uh, that has resulted in great things for some people, much more choice. Um, but uh, simply applying it to all dis disabled people of whatever age isn't always the best thing either. So, for example, in the UK, um, where they've kind of rolled out uh, a more personalised or so-called personalised approach um, across their user groups, uh, there's also research coming out showing that it doesn't always suit all older people. In fact, it doesn't always suit all uh, disabled people. So again, it's about a range of choices and not a sort of one model fits all. Well, I think that point has absolutely been, been well made. Thank you so much, Anne. Um, so again, Anne's book, Disability and Aging Towards a Critical Perspective by Dr. Anne Leahy is available now. It was, it was launched in July of this year um, and it explores the relationship between disability and ageing. Thank you so much, Anne. My pleasure. I enjoyed it, Colette. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Please don't hesitate to get in touch with any ideas you might have or anything you might want to see expanded on um, by contacting us on secretary at socialjustice.ie. Until next time, stay safe.